That was Brittany and Natalie Haas playing at the Baltimore Fiddle Fair in May 2018, and this is Fiona's Travels Podcast. Welcome. Some of you may not realise that it's really weird presenting podcasts. What happens is I've done loads of interviews with somebody or I've recorded some music and that's brilliant. And then when I get home, I have to edit it and I have to sit in a room staring into space talking about it. So today I've got somebody to ask me questions and this is Annabelle. So Annabelle, what are you going to ask me? Today I'm going to ask you what is your podcast about? Okay, I am really, really, really excited about today's podcast. Um, This is number five in this year's series of Fiona's Travels podcast. It's an interview with Ed Harper and it goes really well with some of the previous ones. So in this interview, Ed talks about giving up his day job lecturing in sociology in Kidderminster and living the absolute dream, literally living the dream, of being a goat farmer in Cape Clear Island, West Cork. So he talks about 40 years of um, looking after goats, and it's actually 39 years because I did the interview last year, but this week, the 17th of July, 2019, is the 40th anniversary of Clary Goats on Cape Clear Island. So he talks about 40 years of looking after goats. He talks about the difficulty um, of raising goats on an island when you can't always get a vet to come. And he also talks about his musical life and his political life. And that's really interesting because in my previous podcasts, we met Ed, he had a little a bit part in Vanessa's interview, which was Fiona's Travels number one. And then Fiona's Travels number three was an interview with Peter Rankin, who talked about his political life. And the last one was an interview with a Thatcher who talked about the importance of a physical of the physicality of a life. And so in this podcast, Ed talks about the physicality of his goat farming life so different from being a sociology lecturer. He talks about his political ideas and he talks about, and and he sings and we meet him properly because we've met him a little bit in Vanessa's podcast, but this one is his podcast. People come from all over the world to meet Ed and meet his goats and we're going to meet some of those people and they come to learn from him and we're going to hear a little bit about that as well and we'll hear him singing but we're going to start off with a beautiful slow air played by Brennus, who is another Cape Clear farmer and flautist. It's a very fitting tune to introduce this podcast. It's called Cape Clear.
and then you rub the outside of the cheese with salt for two reasons. One, it, it toughened the outside of the cheese so it was easy to handle. The other, it flavoured the cheese because the salt actually soaked into the cheese a bit. And the third one, it was it protected it primarily against bacteria as well because that they came from the outside if they were going to come from anywhere. And salt, lots of cheeses they dip in brine okay. rather than rubbing salt on them because you, you, if you do in big quantities, you don't want to have to literally rub each cheese. Um, for instance, bean um, brine dip, as far as I know, they used to anyway. I haven't been there for ages, but um, but yeah, they and then they'd be like a, a day you turn turn them over onto clean saucer and it, like they were weeping all the time you know there's moisture coming out all the time and then you move them into the fridge keep them unwrapped for I can't remember how many days it was Was it, it might have even been a week I don't think it was quite that long I think it's four or five days because they'd be drying out slowly and then wrap them keep them for another week so in theory they were like just over a fortnight old when we sold them. But you could sell them younger than that and you get away with it, really, truth be told. And is that what we referred to as, like, was that just called goat's cheese then? It wasn't any particular... We called it Cosh Clara. Okay. Just simply meant Cape Clear cheese. <laughs> but um, <clears throat> but it was, it's technically it's a Colombier cheese. And I think it's a Colombier cheese. Because My name is Nora. I'm from the Barrow Peninsula. And the reason I'm here is because I'm looking at, I have a small goat herd and I'm looking at learning from somebody, which is there's very few people in the whole Ireland that work with goats. So goat, uh, the goat man is Ed <laughs> that everybody knows. So I've come to learn about goat farming and how to create an output and make goats, goat farming viable for me. Because right now I, there is no output, you know, I don't have mm -hmm. on, on my farms. And how's the day been? Oh yeah, brilliant. Yeah, thank you very much. Very informative. Yeah, it's a rare, <laughs> rare to come across goat farmers uh, to go. So I, I also feel like that the knowledge has to be, you know, like the things that you've shared, that you've learned. Like if that knowledge isn't shared, we won't, you know, mm -hmm. like we have to share information like farmers have to share information with each other otherwise we won't develop that as an industry you know it's like the information is lost if it just stays with one person you know Okay, so here I am with Ed Harper, who I've known for about 35 years, 38 years, something like that. At least, actually. And I've been... More, more. Yeah. So we're in Cape Clear Island in his goat farm, in, his, in the farmhouse where I first came in, I don't know when, in a previous century anyway. <laughs> Definitely in a previous century. He's been here since 1979, and he's going to tell me what got him into goating in the first place, and then just talk. Yeah, well, I a lot of my life has been a matter of coming across coincidences and what looked like opportunities and deciding I was going to follow them, however strange and peculiar they were. And that's how I got into goats and how I got into singing as well. 
and it's the same sort of way I got into living on Cape Clear and everything else. Um, but first time I ever met a goat would have been when I was seven years old, and that was with my parents, and we just used to go out for walks in the countryside, and I came across a goat on a path, tethered on a path, and she was called Rosie. And the owner turned up, presumably to protect her goat from these strange rambling people. And anyway, I, I was quite taken with this goat. And she was being a good goat person, told me all about goats and gave me a free glass of goat's milk. And I think that was the start of the rot, really. But I didn't really have much to do with goats other than going to the uh, Bellevue Zoo, it was called, which was outside Manchester, but it's gone now. Um, and every time I went to the zoo, the only I liked kind of the other animals and things, but the only two things I really wanted desperately to see were the elephants and the goats. And I don't have the facilities to keep elephants, so <laughs> it had to be goats. Um, but then I didn't really have much to do with goats other than the odd visit to the goats in the pet's corner in the zoo until I would have been 16. And... I was drinking underage because I went to a blind boarding school and the only way to get any sensible conversation really outside a very small group of people in that school and not go out of your head with boredom was to go to the pub. So um, I, there was a pub I used to go to mostly on Friday nights, in fact nearly always on Friday nights and of course you always had to have an excuse as to where you were going and that kind of thing but I won't bother you with the detail of that sort of business but essentially this particular day it was the um, sorry I usually used to go on Saturday nights I'm talking nonsense but this time it was a Friday because it was the uh, birthday of the founder of the school and we used to get a day off and I was in this pub on a Friday night instead of a Saturday night and I was just having a quiet pint and I went to go to the gents and I met a woman in the corridor who said, why don't you come into our folk club? You look like the kind of person that would like that kind of thing. Uh, which and you didn't have a beard then? No, I didn't have a beard then, no. I didn't even have a dog then. Um, so anyway, I went and I did. And um, when I came to leave, she said um, kind of, you know, where are you from? I've never seen you before. And I said, well, like, don't tell the landlord, but I'm from the, the blind school up the road. Um, and, you know, she said, oh, okay. And I said, what do you do? And she said, well, my husband and I keep goats. And um, obviously they sang and they ran this folk club. and They did other things too. But, um, and I said, oh, goats, you know, fantastic. I love goats. And she said, well, why don't you come and see them? You know, anytime you want to come, just just come out. You know, you're welcome. So thereafter, for the next two years during school terms, I would go out there at least one day most weekends, and sometimes two days. And that's how I got to know goats. But I never milked a goat because I never got there early enough and I could never stay late enough. But I got to know goats as, as people then. And I also got to learn all sorts of other useful things like um, the merits of singing and meeting lots of good people who are musicians and how you go about making cider in large quantities and how you catch pheasants illegally and mm -hmm. all sorts of useful things like that and sadly Colin who was my friend Beastie's husband um, died there a few years back but Beastie's still around and I hope to get to see her before either of us die but she lives in the Isle of Man which is not that easy 
to get to from here. But anyway, um, I'm getting sidetracked as usual. It's it's one of those things. If you live on an island, you tend to get sidetracked because you've got plenty of time, and uh, especially in the winters. Anyway, so that was that was that big coincidence, and that got me into traditional singing of one kind or another, and goats. Um, but then, when I'd be, started coming over to Ireland because of the music, really, um, sometime sort of middle of the 60s, probably 65, 66, that kind of time. Um, and it was mostly up and down the West Coast between um, Donegal and Clare. Never made it to Kerry, except once to Kilorgland to the Goat Fair, uh, Puck Fair in August. And I'd never come to County Cork at all. I once made a an attempt fueled by Pachin to get from um, a place called Ennis Tymon to um, Cork. And this was in the old days before there were decent roads at all. And it was completely hopeless. And I got as far as Limerick, which <laughs> that was the nearest I ever got to trying to get to Cork. But anyway, then um, when I got married in 1972 and... I was teaching at the time in Kidderminster, which is southwest of Birmingham. Um, myself and my wife just had a, a kind of a quick week's honeymoon in a cold December in Edinburgh. But we said, right, the next summer we're going to have a proper holiday. So when that summer came, which is 1973, we came to County Cork and we walked and hitched and camped along the Cork coast, starting at Kinsale and working along this way. Um, and when we got near Skibbery we went into a and b for a night in a soft bed and somebody else to cook the breakfast and they had leaflets that said um, come for a day trip to Cape Clear which was very lucky because they didn't do really much advertising after that for about 20 years so we were lucky to be there at the right time and we asked the woman of the house uh, what was on Cape Clear and she said nothing really but it's beautiful and a ferry goes there from Skull now that meant that if we went into Cape Clear and camped for the night and got the ferry the next day we would be further along the Mizzen Peninsula and we could carry on around the Mizzen Peninsula so we decided that's what we do so sure enough next day we went into Cape Clear and when we got there we actually discovered that there were about 150 people living there and three pubs and two shops and a church and all sorts of other stuff and there was not nothing at all um but you know it was very beautiful so i'm told anyway and they still say it is and uh it certainly it certainly has a fantastic atmosphere it's uh officially speaking apparently one of the entrances to fairyland according to celtic legends and i can see why it has a very distinct feel about itself which is sort of separate from the people. Um, that may have something to do with the fact that there have been people living here probably for something like four and a half thousand years. And I suppose ultimately people leave traces physically and possibly otherwise. But anyway, um, so we came here in the summer of 73 and 74, 75. And by then we decided we liked the place a lot. Um, what kept us here the first time and not going on to school, apart from the fact there were lots of people here and there was what 
a lot of people around here would maintain was the best pub in the world at the time, um, which was Paddy Burke's. Um, sadly, Paddy died and the pub shut. But the um, what kept us here for the, the time was that the skull boat's engine broke down and he didn't come in for three days. <laughs> and by that time that we'd had three days here, we decided to spend the rest of the holiday here. So, And we kept coming back. And then in the... Uh, summer of 76 we saw an ad for this house in Skibbereen um, actually we saw a, an ad for the wrong house in Skibbereen and we asked around which house was for sale got sent to this house and discovered that for the same price as one we'd seen advertised with five acres of land we could have a house which was a bigger house with 27 acres of land uh-huh. And at that stage, it went from, wouldn't it be nice to have a holiday house, which we'd have to rent out or sell off most of the land, so as we finished up with a decent garden, to, wow, I could keep goats. And um, my wife, Winifred, at the time, um, was making enamel jewellery as a hobby. She was actually a teacher. Um, But we thought, well, she could do what she wants to do. I could do what I want to do. And... We'll just have to see if it's feasible. So we got the house bought during the winter of 76 and we came here in 77. And then we started trying out um, the jewellery and that was selling to tourists. So we thought, OK, we've got some kind of an income. And then I bought goats and they came over with us, more or less. We sent the mail over first and then we brought three females shortly after we arrived. Um, and that would have been in 1979, and I've been here ever since. And you sold up in Kidderminster and tracked in your jobs? Yeah, um, and for the price of a terraced house overlooking a ring road with a view of 18 factory chimneys from the attic window, um, I got 27 acres of land and a house, which at the time was a three-bedroomed house, is now, if I was an estate agent, I would say it was a five-bedroomed house, Um and 27 acres of land. And I reckon that was a pretty fair swap. And I had some change too. <laughs> Which you've spent on? Oh, well, it, I didn't, it wasn't enough change. <laughs> I spent it on. Um, there were no actual farm buildings on the land. There was um, a ruined farmhouse. Um, which was the farmhouse before this one. This this land has a long history. Um this this house, the old part of this house, is pre-1840 and the farmhouse, which is now my goat house, was presumably before that. Um, so what we had was effectively four walls full of nettles and brambles. Um, that was that was the potential goat house and a, a, a very old rackety pig house. Um, but the traditional pigsty type, you know, low at one end and high at the, the front, low at the back. Um, and But it had potential. And we actually cleared the what's now the goat house, the old farmhouse, by putting um, a goat in there on a tether. <laughs> and the goat ate the brambles and the nettles and the, you know, whatever else out of it till it was clear enough that, you know, you could get people in. But the really fascinating thing, and this this sounds really mad, but then strange things happen. Um, I'd had a dream 
a few years earlier, I couldn't even tell you how many years earlier, before I even knew Cape Clear existed. And it was a very, very vivid dream. And the strange thing about it was it had I actually could smell things in the dream. Now, that to me is very rare that I smell things in the dream and also very rare that I see things in the dream now. Um, and I could do both in this dream. And it was only after the first winter when I had goats living in sort of lean-to shelters inside the walls of the goat house. And we didn't have a concrete floor down and the whole thing was becoming an awful muddy mess. And there were these big stones that had fallen off the, the stone walls and that had been the hearthstone and that kind of thing in the the original farmhouse in amongst all this huge mud and it developed this very very distinctive smell and I went down one morning went into the goat house and I thought god this is that dream and it sure enough it was I mean <coughs> and so maybe I don't know about these things I, I tend to be very skeptical about you know sort of sort of precognition and that kind of thing but one way or the other it definitely was that or explain it how you like um, but it would seem to me that possibly I was meant to come here anyway one way or the other or maybe I knew I was coming here without knowing it initially um, and here I still am so and 39 years this July hopefully I'll make 40 and you never know you look I might make 50. Wow so tell me about a typical day I've been here for three days so I've been joining in a bit well, it's difficult to say what a typical day is because it, it's like everything in life. It depends on the scale you look at it at. Um, if you look at it standing well back and not seeing the detail, every day is much the same, um, except the days, because of the, the weather and because of the seasons, there is a cycle, which is essentially a yearly cycle um, between mating and birth and, unfortunately, death sometimes. Um but essentially every day, the time varies according to the seasons, but every day um, we milk in the morning. We only milk once a day because the way we run the herd now, we leave the kids on the mothers and they do a better job of raising them than we do really. And then we take the surplus milk in the mornings. This is goat farming for vegetarians because you're not depriving the children significantly. Um, you do need good genetic stock and reasonably well managed so that they have a surplus um, if you have a an any old class of a goat and you don't feed it particularly well you wouldn't get much at all but from our point of view these days it suits us because the bulk of the milk surplus is during the tourist season and these days all our trade is tourist um, since we joined the EU um, we weren't allowed to post cheese into the restaurant trade anymore but I've done goat keeping always. Um, when I started, um, we had a small herd. We started with four animals, one male and three females. At the peak, I built up to 33 milkers, uh, two breeding males and associated kids. So in the summer, I'd have at least 60 on the land. Um, and in those days, I used to take the kids away at birth and I used to milk twice a day, uh, machine milking then. And I used to feed the kids, but I also was a lot younger than I am now. And I used to work 16, 17, 18 hour days sometimes. And, you know, when you're young, and uh, when you think you want to make some money and 
when you're starting to raise children and things and you've got a lot of energy uh, that's grand but um, I wouldn't dream of doing it now quite frankly um, I'd soon have a life and an evening so the day starts more or less with milking um, and then you go through the day they finish milking let the goats out they go off grazing either down our land to the north between the house and the sea which is about 10 acres or else we take them across the road to our south land um, which we have one area fenced as one big field although it was originally several fields it's a hill basically and that's about eight acres and then we have some land on which we grow silage um, small three small fields um, and then we have trees about uh, I think if I remember right it's about six acres of trees except when I say six acres of trees that's a slight exaggeration um, if all the trees had lived it would have been six acres of trees but it's it's uh, six acres with trees in them okay tell me about raising children on a goat farm mm, well really strictly speaking you should ask them but you can't because one of them is living up in County Kildare, working for Irish distillers, the whiskey makers, uh, married with two grandchildren for me, which is nice of him. Um, but the other one still lives here when he's here, and he's very attached to the island. Um, my older son, Edmund, was funnily enough the one who really loves the goats, um, but he loved his girlfriend more, and <laughs> he left at 18 and he married the same woman and they seem as far as i can tell to be very happy so you know that's quite good but sadly the only animals he has now are two guinea pigs um and my younger son who was always the the things person who loved machines and you know building and welding and that kind of thing which is a useful person to have around a farm um he also loved the sea and that's his big love is the sea and at the moment he's up in uh, County Mayo on a well I'm not quite sure how long the contract is it's at least two weeks um, doing a ferry skippering a ferry into Inish Turk and Clear Island um, doing passenger and cargo work up there um, his main job is working on the ferry down here for Cape Clear okay but I'm just thinking of you with young kids helping to you're raising the kids and mm. the other kids, the kids and the goats, and 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 did they help out? Yeah, oh yeah, um, especially Edmund, who's my older son. I mean, and he's he's the he's the animal person. I mean, he, he helped deliver his first kids when he would be about two and a half years old. Um, reason being that my wife was busy making enamel jewellery in the the workshop that we rented down at the harbour. And I was up here on my own with looking after my son and looking after my goats. And I had two sisters, um, kid within five minutes of each other, and they both had twins. So I literally had to sit him down in the hay and say, here, hold these two on your knee and keep drying them with some hay. Showed him what to do. And sure enough, he did it, you know, and he, he loved it. Well, you think and, he did it? Well, they didn't die. <laughs> so... <clears throat> No, he loved goats. He really did like goats. and But I always remember him saying to me when he was five years older than Duncan. Um, and Duncan's my young son. 
And uh, I remember him saying to me when he would be, Duncan was just born, like literally weeks old, and he said to me, so Edmund would have been about five, and he said to me, when Duncan's three, I'll teach him to climb. <laughs> it's a great life for kids because, mind you, I didn't discover till years after the event. On one occasion, I mean, the cliffs at the end of our land would be, oh, I don't know, 75 to 100 feet high uh -huh. in parts. And apparently on one occasion, they inadvertently kicked a ball down the cliffs and proceeded to climb down and get it and come back up again. Uh, if I'd have known, I'd have had kittens, but um, they survived. So, But they spent a lot of time wandering around and climbing. And the great thing about Cape is it's very, very safe. Oddly enough, I don't think the children do much anymore. Um, we now have a bus service on the island, which we never had in those days. And all the kids used to walk to school, but I think Duncan's generation is more or less the last generation that walked to school on a regular basis. Everybody now either gets driven there or gets taken there by the, the Cape Clear bus. So it's a, it's a different world to what it was when we first came. But it seems to me that every time you need somebody, somebody just comes. So you have volunteers here, you have people coming, you have people living here occasionally, Vanessa's living here now. Um, mm. She's the most brilliant goat person. Yeah, I mean, um, I started keeping, well, we're on the, the Wolf programme, which is, um, it, it keeps the same initials and keeps changing its name, actually, from when it started. It apparently, it originally started as um, working weekends on organic farms. And it's now, I think it's now worldwide opportunities on organic farms, oh. something like that. But they've always kept the same letters because it, you know, it's a handy acronym. When I started doing the Wolf program in 2000, um, my original intention was, was primarily to pass on what I knew. Um, I needed a bit of help because um, my wife left in 98. Um, and we separated legally in 2000. So, I mean, when she first went, I was devastated because it's a bit of an emotional upset, even if things haven't been very good. But the main devastation really was I lost the the person who primarily ran one of the businesses and who was the accountant for both of them and and a mother for my child because um, the, the other one had... Um, oh, actually, no, both kids were here at the time, but Edmund left very shortly afterwards with his girlfriend um, but yeah so I was looking for a bit of help but it was a bit of help because I could do everything um, it was nice to get a break occasionally but I could do the lot and I mean I used to using well I've had six guide dogs Izzy's my sixth but using my guide dog I could go up and down the land um, very rapidly the standard trained guide dog learns to follow field paths and you know you're great with the dog you can go anywhere and even when they strayed you know we could go out anywhere I, I'd know I'd be fine you know occasionally I'd get it wrong slip fall over so what Do you know I was young I bounced and you know it didn't matter um and my first woofer as I say came in 2000 and in fact I'm still in contact with her the government is desperately trying to deport her at the moment which is a bit unnecessary really she's been paying taxes in this country for the last 17 years but i won't go on about that at length we're, we're trying to stop it happening um but yeah they 
gradually as time went on I needed more help and um, but still I wanted to pass on knowledge because partly because I wanted just to pass on knowledge but also because the government have got this bee in their bonnet about zero grazing which means you shut goats in prison and the furthest they ever walk is to be milked to the milking parlour and then back they go into the pens and you grow um, largely maize silage and you feed that to them and you have to feed them some hay. As it said on the, the goat course I went on to find out what the government was saying, they said, uh, unfortunately, you have to feed them at least 20% hay or some of the long fibre thing or their digestive systems shut down. And I mean, to me, that is not farming. That is the accountant's idea of farming. If they're easy to manage. You don't have to invest in fencing. It's the same is true of people. You know, the best way of dealing with the population is to put them all in prison because then you know where they are. You don't have to invest in all these security cameras. They're all in prison anyway. You know, you know, if you need workers, you just go along. I mean, the Americans have nearly perfected this system with, you know, you put most of the black population in prison. And then if you want cheap labor at a dollar an hour, I think it is they get in the States in prison. Um, you know where they all are. You just, you know, and all these big brands, you know, not just the military, but, you know, everything from underwear to, um, you know, whatever baskets are, you know, big companies are, are using American prisons at a dollar an hour. They're not allowed to form unions, and if they get out of hand, well, they get thrown in solitary confinement. Great system, and it's the capitalist dream. And if we don't keep an eye out for it, it's going to happen to all of us in the end. Well, not to me, because firstly, I'll be dead, and secondly, I'll be on my farm refusing to go to prison. But, um, but yeah. Uh, so I, I don't approve of prison for goats either. And I think it's also economic stupidity. Um, in a cheap oil time, you can get away with it economically, as long as you don't mind high levels of disease, high levels of stress in your animals, and therefore high losses. But goats, are you know, they what they're good at is climbing, jumping, running, covering a lot of rough ground turning what a cow farmer would consider to be very rough and very poor pasture into top quality products and fertiliser. And, I mean, in the 39 years I've been here, this north side of my farm, which is the 10 acres, because that's had the most time with goats on it, um, is, is now turning very rapidly into quite a good quality cow farm because they eat, preferentially et out the gorse and the brambles that they really like. And they, you know, they eat, grudgingly eat the grass, but um, they like the harder stuff, especially in the winter. And that's why we've had to preserve the south side of our land with heather and gorse and brambles on it. Um, and it, it, it's just silly to go against the nature of, of the animal that you're working with. And the, a lot of the reason for it is that they are persuaded cow farmers that goats are a good alternative um, enterprise. And... The way you avoid having to learn about them as as people um, is just to imprison them. You don't need to be good stockmen. Um, I mean, a good cow farmer is not a good goat farmer because they're very different animals. I mean, you, you do have some people who are good at both. But there's no point in going out and shouting at a herd of goats and waving a stick because they will allow you to drive them so far until they feel under pressure or until they see a point at which... Um, they can play a trick on you and then they'll scatter and that's how goats work and it, you see it if there's a, a stray dog or something what they tend to do is 
they tend to put the kids in the middle. If there's a male with them, the male stays at the back and challenges the dog. The lead female leads them away. And then if they get really under pressure, they just scatter. Because if you scatter, um, there's no one or two predators can nail more than one of you at a time. So there they are scattering and you're get 39 years on and not as nimble as you were. And so the woofers are quite useful. They're, they're absolutely essential now. Um, well, they're not quite so essential now. My friend Vanessa's moved in. Um, she moved in two years ago. Um, but really, if Vanessa were to you know, decide she was leaving, um, I would be stuck without woofers. And if I had... If things stayed the way they are now with big gaps, I would seriously have to give up farming, goat farming. I couldn't do it. Um, because there's so many things I can't really do now. I can't go down the land um, to fetch the goats in. Most of the time I don't have to. Um, yeah, I mean, they come in themselves, don't they? They do. I mean, the proof of the pudding was in the eating. I, I, my third dog dropped dead of a massive heart attack and I was without a dog for 13 months. And in that 13 months, I only had to get help from somebody three times to get the goats in because they came home. Um, I never had to go further than... We have a big ridge of rock just north of the house, sort of two fields away from the house. And I could get that far. Um, and I never had to go further than that and just go through that gap in the ridge. And you can be heard about two-thirds of the way down the land if you call from there. It's a very, very steep land. And they would come in, and it was only three times I had to get somebody to go looking for them for me. Wow. So apart from goats... There's politics and there's music and there's friends. Yeah. Is that... That that sums up pretty well what my life is, really. Okay. Yeah. Do you want to say anything about any of those things? Yeah. I mean, um, well, the, the the link between them, if best link I can think of, is Vanessa, because I met Vanessa through politics. Um, I've been a socialist probably all my life. I joined the British Labour Party Young Socialist when I was 16 um, and I'd been thinking about politics for at least a year or two before that just because I was interested in the news and that kind of thing. And also because I was in this very anomalous situation because I went to a blind school and there were only two blind schools in the country, one for boys and one for girls at a kind of an academic level. So you were thrown in with people from all over the country. And in the nature of Britain, a lot of those people were from the southeast of England. And they had a very different culture to me. And that's what really started me thinking about, you know, if you like, politics of the small p. Um, particularly attitudes to women. Because where I came from, most of the women worked. And, you know, whatever the official position of the man in the household, in actual fact, they the older women tended to be the ones with the authority, really. And then I was thrown into a bunch of lads who thought that, you know, the only use for women was either horizontal in the bedroom or standing at the sink, and that women were all stupid. And they genuinely believed it. And I, I just... I remember having this, this revelation when I'd, I'd be about 15, I think, and I remember actually saying something, do you really believe that? And, you know, I thought they were joking. And they really believed it. And then I started thinking politically. I started thinking, how come you have a society like that? Why are there such differences across the you know the, the country and all this kind of stuff? And as I say, I joined the Labour Party Young Socialists at 16, but um, I really became a confirmed Marxist when 
would have been in the 1960s, probably 67, possibly 68, when I was at university. And not because of any any uh, brilliant lecturers, because we, we did a bit on Marx, but not a terrible lot. I did social sciences. Um, but because a friend of mine, who was in the, did the same politics course as me, um, who was one of the, from a wealthy family, but she wasn't particularly wealthy because her brothers got most of the money. Um, but we went down to London and we were staying in the flat of her brother who... Um, these days you'd call him an investment banker in those days they called him a merchant banker and inevitably you know we we got into a discussion about the state of the economy and stuff and um my friend said to me well uh i forgot to get stop your marxist nonsense because she was afraid that i think that the brother would get furious and kick his out and then we'd have nowhere to stay for the weekend and he said no no he said uh you know we agree entirely on the analysis. He's quite right. Um, the difference is he doesn't like it and I make a profit from it. And I thought, well, that's it, didn't it? I mean, what the conclusion I'd come to, because part of my social sciences degree, part one of the degree, we did everything under the sun and that included economics. And I'd come to the conclusion that what they were teaching me called economics was essentially capitalist ideology and how it should be, not how it was. How, how they'd like it to be. And here's the guy, you know, who's intimately involved in this system, well up the system, and, I mean, now living very well in his retirement, you know, in a, a very expensive house, very well off, and obviously he's, he succeeded in those terms, and he was obviously quite right. Um, but I thought to myself, well, what more do I need to know? You know, I mean, there's, if you like, the other side is telling me we're right. So all these people who tell me, you know, that Marx is, is talking rubbish, um, well, they they obviously they're wrong you know they and i can see why they're wrong um because they want to keep their jobs and you know they're employed as an economist teaching capitalist economics so they teach capitalist economics and in actual fact funnily enough the first essay i ever wrote at university i had a, a tutor who was um, a supervisor in fact who was a an economist from the economics department and he set us all an essay in his group before we did any classes at all. He said, I just want to know what you write like and, you know, how you think. And the one he sent me was, what are the advantages of student loans over student grants? And we're talking 1967. Mm. And so I, you know, sat and thought about it for a bit and wrote wrote this essay. And essentially the the, the essay said, unless you want to exclude the disabled women and the lower economic groups of society from universities, there are no advantages to loans over grants. Um, the advantages for loans over grants are to those making the loans who will make profits from them and from those who wish to change the... Because in the, the 60s we had the big boom in working-class people going to university because of largely because of Harold Wilson and the, and the run of Labour governments and the desperate skill shortages. So they wanted a, a, a big increase in universities and a big increase in people with that kind of educational background. And, I mean, I would have never got to university if I hadn't done it then. I was just lucky. Another coincidence. I was the first person in, in my family ever went to university um, and I could only do it because there was a, a generous grant system. And these days, with student loans, um, 
there's no way I'd have gone. Yeah. I wouldn't have considered the debt. So how did that essay go? Well, he, what he said to me was, he said, he said, well, it's a bit polemical in style. He said, but he said it, it's you know, um, very good essay. And I said, well, am I right or am I wrong? And he <laughs> said, he said, well, look, I'm not prepared to lose my job over it, um, but it won't make you popular. And I said, how do you mean it won't be popular? I didn't know that's why I'd come to university. I thought I'd come to learn things. And he said, yeah, he said, did did you not read Professor Peacock and Professor Maynard's pamphlet on student loans? I said, I don't even know who they are. And he said, right, well, you should know that at least. Professor Peacock's the head of the economics department and Professor Maynard is in the Institute of Social and Economic Research, which is attached to the university. Um, they wrote this thing. They are pushing the idea of student loans rather than student grants. And he said, um, you should have read it, really. I thought you would go to the library and find out about it. I said, well, that's one of the things you ought to know about me. It's difficult for me to go to a library and look stuff up. So, you know, I have a tendency to do a lot with a little. And he said, yeah, OK, fair enough. He's, and I said, well, no, answer my question. Am I right? Am I wrong? He said, well, I'm not going to say so publicly because I, I want to keep my job. But no, you're entirely right. Wow. And I thought, well, that'll do me. <laughs> so you so, arrived in Ireland. So, yes, I arrived in Ireland and initially in Ireland for, you know, the first 20 years or more, um, you know, I was, I was raising kids, raising goats, building up the farm, building up the businesses and doing a bit in, if you like, local community politics um, in the sense of, of pushing th for the islands, pushing for Cape Clear in particular, um, did dealing with sort of council officials when the roads were bad and that kind of thing. I mean, there's one of my neighbours who we, we had this great system going where I would he would um, ring me up and say, there's an awful bit of road now in so-and-so place. I'd ring the council and I'd ask to talk to the, the road engineer or I'd ring up a couple of councillors and I'd say, listen, there's this terrible thing and I'm getting all these complaints. Um, you know, could you see if you could do something about it? And then he'd wait about half an hour and he'd ring up and start yelling and screaming and swearing in Irish to prove that I was getting all these complaints. <laughs> and it worked really well for a long time. But anyway, <clears throat> but so that that was more or less, that was the politics I did, you know, for a, quite a good number of years. And then um, we, when we got into the, well, running into the 2008 recession, I mean, it was obvious the way things were going. And I mean, the government, the Irish government were carrying out the international capitalist policy of essentially um, saying we're g going into recession. It's not our fault. We can't help it. It's forces beyond our control. Then you collapse the banks and then you say, oh, my God, the country's gone broke. We'll have to bring in austerity policies. And that means you can force down workers wages. You can cut public services and all these things. And it was very obvious that this was the way things were going and I was sick of it and it just infuriated me because it was so patently, if it wasn't organised, um, you know, as as let's all get together at Davos or somewhere and decide this is what we're doing, it was organised by a kind of uh, quiet consensus that you get in in groups of people when they can see, you know, what the best way of getting what they want is. 
So anyway, I got fed up of it and I thought, I've got to do something about this. I cannot put up with the way things are. So I got some posters made and I put them up around Skibbereen. I got them put up around Skibbereen for me. Just saying, anybody who is sick of the way the government's behaving, come to this meeting and the, in Skibbereen. So I had 12 people at the meeting and we decided we had to do something about it. And the best thing we could do about it was A, take a stall on the market and any local issues, we would carry the petitions for, for whatever the causes were. So people could at least have a voice and could get somewhere they could go and talk and meet each other and so on. That was a public place and we couldn't afford it anywhere else. So it was in the market and it was open air. And then the other thing we decided was to raise money for a film projector so we could show political and environmental economic type films to get discussions going. So we did that and that wasn't the first time I met Vanessa, but that was the first time Vanessa came to West Cork because Vanessa at that stage was working for People Before Profit, um, which was a political party that was formed in 2005, at which I happened to be at the launch meeting because I heard this thing was being formed and I thought, right, I'm going to Dublin to see what this is about. Um, and... She also was for the Socialist Workers' Party. Um, the, the two organisations have cross-membership. There are a lot more people in People for Profit than the Socialist Workers' Party. In fact, technically speaking, the Socialist Workers' Party doesn't exist anymore in Ireland. It's now the Socialist Workers' Network. It changed its name. It's gone primarily over to education. Um, there's about 200 and something people in that, whereas People Before Profit, there's over 1,500 in it. And there's quite a lot of people in People Before Profit wouldn't be into revolutionary socialism like the people in, in SWN are. But, <clears throat> um, so anyway, um, we I, I met Vanessa at conferences um, in Dublin and mainly because of the dog, I suppose, as much as anything, because Vanessa's always loved animals. And so she really, I think she probably came talk to me first because of the, the dog that I had with me. And then the two of us were very much pushing the same idea within the, those organisations that we, you know, you cannot just stick to the cities. Two thirds of the people of Ireland don't live in the city. Um, if you're going to get anywhere in Ireland, you've got to go to the countryside. And of course, the traditional sort of received wisdom of sort of socialist groups is, I don't know, the cities is is where it's at and... It's, of course, it's much easier to organise in cities, mm. you know. But um, anyway, we kind of won the day, but it was more or less, look, if you're that damn keen on the country, you know, go and organise Monster, they said to Vanessa. And it was an impossible job. I mean, she, she was given an area which actually has the same population as Dublin, but it has it goes from Waterford on the east coast to um, Tralee and on more or less the, the west coast in Kerry and includes County Cork. Now County Cork alone has is the equivalent of three counties anywhere else in Ireland. It was a totally impossible job. But anyway, she she was obviously told work the cities, the cities matter most, the cities and the big towns matter most. But because she knew me and because she liked animals and because I was here kind of um working away politically, she was determined that you know, I would get support in West Cork, if nothing else. So she would take time 
um, a somewhat annoyance of the, the national office to come over to support me and things. And so she came over to this this um, fundraiser for the film projector that we had on. And by this time, I think we had probably formed the People for Profit branch. Um, but that was... I mean, she was thrilled because she stayed um, at my friend Gail's house. The other two of us stayed there. And I think it was probably the first time she'd ever fed chickens and certainly the first time she'd ever fed turkeys. And um, and she was very... The job, as I say, was too much for one person and she was getting pretty kind of tattered. And I said to her, why don't you, while you're hit, over here, why don't you come into Cape and, you know, come for the rest of the weekend and come and see the goats and oh no I haven't got time I haven't got time you know I, I've got to get back to Cork and what I said well just come in for the day so she came in for the day and by the time she'd been in for the day uh, she'd kind of fallen in love with the goats and she stayed for the rest of the weekend and then she just kept coming back and we, we were working together politically anyway and she just kept coming for weekends and whatever and eventually she left the, the job, went back to college. And when she went back to college, well, she came here before she went to college, between leaving the job and starting college. So she was here for a few months then. And by then, you know, she was definitely addicted to goats. <laughs> and so, and also by the end of that, she knew a lot about goats. And it was great for me because I had a reliable person that I could, you know, call on, except when she was at college. But, um, Anyway, eventually after she, she finished college, she moved down here, which is two years ago now. And she's been here almost exactly two years, I think. I think it was May she came, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but anyway, whatever about it. She's been here about two years. And all being well, um, we intend to kind of stay working together. And, you know, we're really good friends. I don't see us breaking up for any reasons, really. And we have an idea would which um in one sense i'd be sorry to carry out because i don't really want to leave the island but in practical terms it in the end makes sense to move the herd to the mainland if we can get land on the mainland we don't need as much land as we have here really um then vanessa ultimately when i'm dead and gone can make a decent living out of the goats it's very difficult to make a good living living on cape because our tourist season is so short if we lived on the mainland, we could. There are three, well, two very good markets in West Cork. One in Skibreen and one in Bantry, and you could do those markets mm -hmm. uh, if you lived on the mainland. You could literally set up a stall in either of those markets, cut out the middleman. You could also deal with the the supermarkets and the towns and so on. So you could make a much better living than you can here, and also you'd have the great advantage you'd ha you'd have vets on tap. Um, but in one sense, you know, being here for a while, and I mean, our problem is raising the money. It's great training for Vanessa because she's learnt, if you like, she's learnt veterinary skills that you wouldn't have if you lived on the mainland because we have to do most of our own veterinary work here. It's, it's vet by phone most of the time. Um, you ring the vet and say, what do I do now? You know, and the vet, all being well, is coming next week because once a year he has to come and he has to... Um, fill in these bureaucratic forms which says this goat on this day looked healthy enough to me 
and they're called compliance forms and they're almost meaningless but it keeps the bureaucracy happy he also has to do he has to test 10 percent of my herd for tb um, because we don't have bovines on the land if we do have bovines on the land we would have to test all of them every year um Hooray. so that's very exciting because it means he has to actually test 2.8 goats <laughs> so <laughs> but anyway, so we'll be well, he's coming this week. But most of the time, uh, it has to be a dire emergency before the vet will actually come to the island. More often, if a goat is well enough, um, but you want help from a vet, you put the goat in the trailer and take it to the mainland. Mm. And he, he meets you and either comes onto the boat and does whatever it is, or he does it on the pier. So your life here, like I said, it's goats and politics. While I've been here for three days, you and Vanessa have done the goats and argued about politics the entire time. Not argued, really, talked about politics mm -hmm. the whole time, set up meetings. Um, the house is full of um, full of posters for the forthcoming referendum. We've been talking about that. And the one thing that we haven't done in this nearly hour's worth of conversation <laughs> is talk about, about singing. That. So I've heard you sing to the goats. That's mostly what I do these days because... Um, there are sessions on the island, but the the role of a singer in an Irish session is basically when the musicians either need a drink or need to go to the loo. Um, it's, oh, come on, Ed, give us a song. And that, that is the traditional role of the singer in an Irish session. So, I mean, you know, if I go to a session, I might get two or three songs in a night, you know, that kind of thing. Um, I'm not sure how many songs I actually have. I know... A few years back, I got a booking in the Singers Club in Dublin. And my friend Joe, who is kind of my unofficial manager, um, not that I need managing, but he's been a dead fan of mine since, well, he'd been coming to the island. I remember him saying to me, he said, I always remember the first time I saw you. And I said, what? And he said, well, he said, you walked into the club, which is the co-op club down below. And in those days, I used to have quite a long beard and, you know, whatever else well, I have reasonably long hair now but um and he said you walked in looking like a, a an old testament prophet and then proceeded to sort of walk sit down and then sing you know incredible political songs and he said like you know I really wanted to get to know you then and I've known him oh god that was that would have been the the probably the very early 1980s and I've known him ever since and he's he's a flute player and whistle player and a member of the the um, teachers union, well retired now, but he's a member of the teachers union in Dublin, and I mean very political as well. And but yeah, um, so he got me this booking in the singers club in Dublin, and he said to me, "What you want to do is write down all the songs you know, and then work out the ones you think would be appropriate, and you know make sure you can sing at least twelve of them really, really well." So I thought, Grant, OK, I'll do that. So I sat down and, and at the time I wrote them down, then I had 133 songs. Mm. Um, and I know I've learned some since. I couldn't tell you how many. And I've probably forgotten one or two since because if you don't keep singing a song, it tends to deteriorate. Um, but as I say, you know, going to a session once in a while and singing two or three songs, it takes you a long time to get through your songs. And I mean, I'm not that organised. I, I wouldn't sing through a list of songs. I mean, sometimes, you know, like in, in May, I'll sing songs about May, probably. <laughs> um, you know, at Christmas, I'll sing 
Christmas carol type songs and you know that that kind of thing I mean just what mood takes me or somebody will sing a song and I say oh that reminds me of and I'll sing whatever it is you know um so the, the main audience I have is the goats and I I pretty well do my best to sing through most of the songs most of the time if I remember that I know them to the goats and they're a great audience because they firstly well they don't clap but on the other hand they're reasonably attentive and it, it calms them down um which can be very useful and I suppose that's because well I've had generations of goats here and I've sung to all of them so you know before they were born they've probably heard me singing and particularly if I'm stuck down in, in a pen waiting for somebody to kid and I'm down there at length, you know, what else would you do but sit and sing? So, you know, it, it's a very useful tool from a goat keeping point of view as well. It's just the most beautiful rounded story. So 39 years, now that's a nice round number, 39 years on Cape and it's about goats and politics and song and it's all together political song singing political songs to the goats for 39 years on Cape Clear Island that's very true yeah <laughs> it is love it okay and that's exactly an hour thank you so much any last things to say mm. start off for another hour if I ask you a question like <laughs> yeah dangerous question yeah I mean the the one thing I would say is is that you know I sincerely hope you know, I mean, God knows how much longer I've got because I'm I'm seventy this year, so, you know, ten years with a bit of luck. Um, much after that, I'll be very lucky. And I mean, I've just had a friend of mine die in about seventy-seven, was she seventy-eight? And that was very sudden and out of the blue. I never expected it. So, you know, it could happen any time. I just hope when I go that you know Vanessa is in a position to carry on the goats and the politics. Um, she also sings. She doesn't do it very often, unfortunately, but she can sing very well and she needs to learn more songs. But she probably knows more politics or at least as much politics as me and probably more. And she's pretty well well on the way to know as much about goats as I do. So if she'd only learn a few more songs, I could die quietly. Well, Ed Harper, thank you very much. My name is Heather. I am from Madison, Wisconsin. I met Ed in 2003 when we did a full moon circle on a beach somewhere on this island. South Harbor. South Harbor, okay. And when we were all breaking up the circle, Ed came up to me and shook my hand and said, you need to kid goats. And I said, why do I need to do that? And he said, you have the hands for it. So it's been on the list of things to do for quite some time, and it's still on the list now. <laughs> but I came back. Even though I didn't get to kid goats, I milked a goat. Mm. And so um, we've been friends, and that was 15 years now. Yeah. And then thanks to Facebook, we found each other again. Mm. <laughs> so I'm back, and it's it's I built almost built this entire tour around that when I told my travel agent in Dublin that I needed to come to Cape Clear. Sarah kind of made an, uh, an expression, I couldn't uh, gasp on her email, saying, well, that's awfully far south. And I said, yeah, I, I, uh, I don't care how no. far south it is. I need to go again. Yeah, 
it's interesting because she says she's coming next month as well. I know, and I, then I, <laughs> so I've inspired our travel agent to come here, and then our driver for our bus has never been here either, so it, it was, it's kind of fun to <laughs> inspire some locals. I do actually almost know, but I can't sing it to you because I don't know it well enough, a song which includes politics and goats, and since it's a song <laughs> it's singing, um, which is a, a thing called the Peeler and the Goat, but I don't know it well enough to sing it. Do so you want I to won't. sing just a couple of verses from it? Because mm, the whole song no, will go in there. No, no. I'll, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll sing, I'll sing, if I sing... Um, because of the time of year and because it's political and because it's Irish, I'll sing a Connolly song. Um, and th this, this is a song from it's about the 1913 lockout, in fact. <clears throat> there is a page in history when the workers first fought back, when the might of exploitation it first began to crack. In farm, in field, in factory, in workshop, mine and mill, a flame was lit, a beacon bright, that flame is burning still, and James Connolly was there, Connolly was there, great, brave, undaunted, oh, James Connolly was there. The bosses tried to sweat the lads away down Glasgow's Clyde Until a voice like thunder, it stopped them in their stride In Liverpool and Belfast, the workers lived in hell Till they began to organise and any man could tell that James Connolly was there, Connolly was there. Great, brave, undaunted, oh, James Connolly was there. Now William Martin Murphy and his Dublin millionaires tried bribery and corruption, hypocrisy and prayers. To break the transport union, the scabs they did enlist. But all their graft was shattered by a scarlet iron fist. And James Connolly was there. Connolly was there. Great, brave, undaunted, oh, James Connolly was there. It's been a pleasure, Ed. Thank yeah, you very much for sharing your home and, and your farm, your hospitality and your voice. Uh, we appreciate your songs. and Any and, excuse uh, to sing as far as I'm concerned. It's, it's a good thing. <laughs> we agree. You've Thank been you. listening to Fiona's Travels, Episode 5, Ed Harper, Following a Dream. To get to Cape Clear Island, find your way to Cork, get a bus to Skibbereen, get a bus to Baltimore, get a ferry to Cape Clear Island, turn left, go up the hill, walk for 20 minutes and you'll find Clary Goats. Please subscribe to listen to more Fiona's Travels podcasts 
And if you've enjoyed it, please review it on Apple Podcasts. Thank you.